an ice age, then it was global warming, and then they couldn't really decipher between the two, so now it's just climate change, because the climate obviously changes, duh. And that's not to say that humans don't have a negative impact on the climate. We Welcome back to another episode of Tea with Taylor. I want to thank you guys, any of you who are watching or whoever have watched my content. I appreciate it, so thank you. And I want to do a, a pre-warning. My cat is on one today, so I apologize in advance. Anyways, in this episode, we are going to cover the topic of climate change. And I'm going to be specifically referencing the book that I recently finished, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet by Boren Lomberg. Boren Lomberg is a visiting professor at Copenhagen Business School, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute a uh, Hoover Institute at Stanford, a best-selling author. Time has named him one of the most 100 most influential people of the world, and foreign policy has repeatedly called him one of the top 100 global thinkers. The Guardian identified him as one of the 50 people who could save the planet. He lives in Prague. He's worked on the UN on their climate advisory board. And I want to start off by saying, obviously, he's going to be critical of a lot of the policies that politicians and governments around the world are trying to implement. If you read his book, which I definitely suggest that you do, not only because there's going to be a lot of information that I don't go over, but it's very easy to read, Such and he like is able to dissect such a complex issue, and he has many graphs, and I go through with a highlighter, obviously, when I read, and it helps me, one, what's most important to me, and also to comprehend what I am reading, but when you read his book, you will understand that he really does care about the the climate and he really does care about the impact humans have on our planet and how what he and then he'll go over strategies of what he thinks would be beneficial of implementing but while he cares about the planet he also cares about people and he also cares about weighing the cost and benefit about any policies that are implemented which is what anyone should do for any topic specifically those that are can be detrimental to prosperity health, and the overall well-being of many countries. So I just wanted to put that out there because he is going to be somewhat critical. And I too, for anyone who knows me, I am very much someone who is concerned about the planet. I am, I love the ocean. I want to make sure that we're keeping our waters and our air and our land clean and taking care of animals but I also care about people and I care about their ability to be prosperous and developing nations to be able to live lives that us here in the developed world and me, of course, in America specifically, privileged lives. And I don't think it's right for the West to tell these other countries or to hinder their ability to prosper in the name of climate change while we already live such privileged lives. So I just wanted to get that out there from the beginning before people are like, you know, you don't even care because I do. You know, we need to, as a society, realize that there is nuance in every topic and we need to be able to acknowledge that. And if someone disagrees with you, it doesn't mean that they disagree with the topic completely. So some things that I'm going to be going over. One, climate fear. Two, why do we get climate change so wrong? Three, how to measure the future and policies. Four, extreme weather or extreme exaggeration. Number five, what is global warming costing us? Six, how not to fix climate change? Seven, why the Paris Agreement is failing? 
Eight, why climate change hurt, climate change policies hurts the poor. Nine, how to fix climate change. And 10, my conclusion. So as you can tell, there is quite a bit to go over. It's probably gonna be one of my lengthier videos. I hope you stay tuned to listen. And of course, I'm not telling you what to think. I'm giving you information for to give you something to think about. So just say. So let's start with climate fear. As many of us know, and especially in today's date of 2021, as we are from 15 days to a year and a half of slowing the spread of COVID, we live in a society filled with fear. And a lot of it is nonsensical. There was a poll in Washington Post in 2019, ages 13 to 17, 57% feel afraid about climate change. 52% feel angry and 42% feel guilty. For 70% of the children, TV, news, and movies and were central to forming their terrified terrified views. Because all because we all know that fear sells. And when you're younger, you're you're like a sponge, so you're more adaptable to what you see. And you kind of because you you haven't lived that much life, so you haven't conceptualized a lot of your thoughts or your beliefs on certain things. So you're very easily manipulated by those around you, especially when you see people that you admire touting these views and these beliefs, you're more likely to believe it. And like I said, you haven't lived that much life, so are you, so your knowledge and is very minute. So while fear sells and we see it constantly, what we don't tend to see is the progress and the incredible conditions that humans live in today because even our grandparents, and I'm only 27, could not have imagined, I don't think, the life of convenience and privilege that many of us live here today. And of course, I'm in America, but I'm, I'm really speaking for the developed world in the, for the most part. So let's go over some of the facts that are never, never seem to make the media, but are truly incredible. Since 1900, we have more than doubled our life expectancy. 1900, the average lifespan was 33 years old. Today, it's more than 71. In many, in many countries, it's around like 80, I think it's 84. That's incredible, that's more than doubled. The world is more literate than it's ever been. Indoor air pollution is down, which is previously the biggest environmental killer. In 1990, it caused more than 8% of deaths, and now it's closer to 4.7, meaning 1.2 million people survived who would, other who would have otherwise died. And a lot of this is when you have to use like coal or wood to heat your homes. It obviously creates indoor air pollution, which now through innovation and adaptations, humans now have more sufficient ways to heat their homes. And we're going to get into that a little bit more further in the episode. Since 1990, 2.6 billion more people gained access to improved water sources, bringing the global total to 91%. That's incredible. Nearly 4 in 10 people on the planet were poor. Today, it's less than 1 in 10. The world is getting greener as well, as only 4% of the world has gotten more brown. The rest of the world has become greener, which we'll get into more in depth, but that is because the additional carbon dioxide that is put into the atmosphere, that's obviously food for plants, as well as once nations become more developed, they don't need to deforest and cut down trees in order to heat their homes or cook or any of the essential living conditions that humans need to survive. So all of that never gets talked about, that the world's greener, that humans are living longer, that we are tackling diseases, that we have more access to drinking water and food. 
And then many of the predictions made in the past, this, those same people are never held accountable for having wrong predictions. And these are the experts that they're always talking about, but they never claim to tell us when the experts were wrong. But they always say, experts say, therefore you must believe it to be true. So let's go over some of those predictions that didn't turn out to be right. <laughs> in 1982 and 1989, the UN predicted devastation as complete as irreversible as nuclear holocaust by the year 2000. The UN in, in 1989, the UN environmental program declared we had just three years to win or lose the climate struggle. We all know, end quote, we all know that the world faces a threat potentially more catastrophic than any other threat in human history, climate change and global warming. And Lomberg makes a good point to say, really? More catastrophic than potential nuclear war now that many countries have nuclear war or nuclear capabilities? Or more catastrophic than losing over 100 million people in two world wars in just the 20th century? Or tuberculosis, which from the last 200 years has killed about a billion people? So what they claim to do is they always put fear into you and they always speak about the most catastrophic situations because they know humans are short, we're short-minded, we have a short memory, and that we really have a bad, we tend to have bad perspective on things that will focus on the bad things and we lose perspective on all the good things. And I don't know if you guys remember growing up, but it constantly, the goalposts tend to change. It was, do you remember the ozone layer depletion, acid rain, deforestation, all when one when one doesn't come true, when one catastrophe doesn't come true, well, they gotta implement another one. Then they gotta implement another one. It was an ice age, then it was global warming, and then they couldn't really decipher between the two, so now it's just climate change because the climate obviously changes, duh. And that's not to say that humans don't have a negative impact on the climate. We will go over that, obviously we do, pollution overfishing. We need to make sure that our waters, our lands, our oceans, our airs, everything is clean. That's something, and we need to make sure that we are being humane to both humans and animals. No one's arguing that point, but we're, we're arguing that the data that is given to you to be constantly fearful is many cases wrong and many cases over-exaggerated. So, in 1970s, number of high professional or high profile researchers promoted fear of another ice age. Science News, their cover of, of Science News, had the story another ice age in 1974. It was extremely serious, if not catastrophic. Even if no ice age, the drop in temperatures would lead to crop failures making human life unsustainable. And what do you do to problems that are so catastrophic that they would make human life unsustainable? You'll do anything at any cost. And in my opinion, that's part of the point. If it's so bad, can we really put a price tag on it? I guess I don't think so. But the thing is, that's why they sell it as catastrophic. So let me continue. Not only have they always sold us the Armageddon of climate, they have also sold us our resources running out. The limits to growth, predicting that with great confidence that the gold would run out by 1979, along with aluminum, copper, lead, mercury, natural gas, oil, silver, tin, tungsten, zinc, running out before 2004. It is now 2021, if none of you guys have noticed. 
Since 1946, te technology had made more copper, aluminum, iron, and zinc available than we have consumed. And prices, as many of you know, have generally fallen. So we were gonna run out of these all these natural resources until we weren't. But like who pays the price of being wrong? No one. They just make you fearful and then they move on to the next topic. And David Wallace Wells in The Unthinkable Earth estimated about 14 trillion to 100 trillion damages every year by 2100 by rising sea levels because of climate change. Counting how many people would die and how much wealth in those areas would be flooded. But the one caveat there for his calculations, he didn't calculate adaptation. And Lombard makes the point that anyone who calculates some sort of climate impact without including the calculation of adapt human adaptation is something that can't be considered because as we all know, humans for all of human for all of human history have adapted. We have adapted, we innovate, that's what we do. So it does have to be calculated when we're considering future damage. Let's continue. Washington Post 2019. So now that we talk about climate change all the time, how much do Americans actually care about climate change? More than three quarters of all Americans think climate change is a serious or major problem. A majority are unwilling to spend even $24 on fixing it, yet many policies will cost them thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars per person. And as we'll get into more of us, obviously us in a more developed, privileged society, we tend to care about the environment. When, you're, when you go to these developing nations who, where their children are dying of disease, where they don't have food or enough food or enough water or, excuse me, sustainable living situations, they don't really give a shit about the environment. And that's sad. So what do we need to do? We need to get them economically viable and more prosperous as a nation because then they will think and consider and care about things like the climate. So why do we get climate change so wrong? Partly because fear sells and no one is held accountable for having wrong predictions. We also forget the fact that, of course, like I was just saying, humans adapt, humans innovate. When humans have the freedom to do these things, we tend to solve problems. Government, on the other hand, tend to just exacerbate problems. And the basic, the, and I would say on that point, is to be skeptical of all those people that are always selling you Armageddon. Is it because they really want to solve these problems knowing that the government really sucks at solving these problems or they want more control over your life? And do you not believe more in the people and in innovation and human ingenuity and human enterprise to solve these problems? Or do you believe more in the select few in the government where they have never are held accountable they can get unlimited amounts of money and unlimited amounts of power over your life. Just something to think about. And an example of why we get so wrong is because they lead stories like this. I thought this one was very interesting. In 2019, time cover story of Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. I'm working on my Spanish, by the way. <laughs> Photograph standing in a suit and tie in the waters where, he, where his thighs cut off and he was on the nation of Tuvalu. Rise, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. If I'm not, I, I apologize. T-U-V-A-L-U, Tuvalu. 
Um, rising seas threaten to submerge Tuvalu. Reality, rising sea levels are an issue, but in scientific study of Tuvalu, published in Nature's, contradicts the statement. It confirms that only, not only has the sea level been rising, but around Tuvalu, it has risen twice the global average. Yet, during the last four decades of strong sea level rise, Tuvalu has actually expanded and seen its total land increase by 2.9% due to accretion. So even though the sea level has risen, and that's why they want to make you very scared, you know, Florida's going to be underwater in 50 years, everybody, but that's why all the wealthy people and politicians keep buying global properties. Obama, who obviously was very, was a very large figure in the push for climate change, has a oceanfront property on Martha's Vineyard. Now, if he was that scared of climate change and that the oceans were going to take over all the land masses, why is he buying an oceanfront property? Something to think about. But what accretion is, is so when you have these, when the, when the ocean when the ocean starts to rise and they have heavier waves or the waves tend to break down the shells and then the shells add to the, the landmass. So it was a time 2019 cover when the information was out there that contradicted their fear tactic or fear story. Another example that I found interesting because it obviously was something that was a big movement in the US was Al Gore when he was a very large, probably one of the most prominent or first prominent political figures in America to push for climate change. He had one of his documentaries, An Inconvenient Truth, that showed a sad polar bear floating away and melting ice and presumably to its death where everyone was scared that polar bears were dying. Well, Lomberg goes to point out that surviving polar bears who have survived through the last interglacial period from 13,000 to 115,000 years ago when it was significantly warmer than it was now. They survived the first thousand years of the current interglacial period where Arctic sea ice covered was strongly reduced to ice-free summers in the central Arctic Ocean. And polar bears, conservationists began setting their, their population in the 1960s realized that the biggest threat to polar bears was hunting. And I want to make this side note. A lot of the conservation of land and animals are paid and pushed for from hunters. So many of those who look down on people who hunt, they actually give a shit more about the environment than many of those who claim to. Just saying, look it up. But anyways, it actually turns out that the polar bear population has grown. In 1981, the estimate was about 23,000. And in 2019, the estimate is about 26,500. So that's good. More polar bears. Let's celebrate that. Yet, where is there, where, where is Al Gore to say that his predictions were wrong? And will he ever get reprimanded for it? I don't think so. Let's continue to some things that they point out that are of more concern to the environment and animals and that's things like the exploitation of overfishing and habitat loss and they say this is 2018 the world wildlife fund living planet report that the habitat loss and overfishing is responsible to 70 to 80 percent of all threats to species and i did watch a good episode or a good documentary on netflix about overfishing and 
it was very alarming and concerning. So I definitely take take a look at it. I don't remember what it's called at the moment. I think it's like Seaspiracy. I think that's it. But it just goes to show like we can have regulations here in America or other countries. But if other countries aren't doing somewhat of the same thing, you know, we share the oceans and we share the air. So and how do you really regulate the ocean? I don't, I don't really know how to solve that problem, but that documentary was very eye-opening. And it goes to show that, again, we share the ocean and we share the air. So why should America, for example, put into policies that will heavily impact our economic growth while countries like China are ramping up their emissions and ramping up their development, even though they make promises in the Paris Climate Accord that they don't stick to? Most countries won't because their promises are not attainable by any economic standard but we share the same air so if they're going to continue pumping co2 into the air and lomberg explains which we'll get into more won't solve the problem but why should we cost our economy while they're going to grow theirs it doesn't make economic sense especially when he he argues that it won't even solve the problem and China has tripled its carbon emissions since 2000 to become the world's largest carbon emitter and has seen its renewable energy use have fall or have halved from almost 20% in 2000 to about 10% in 2020. So the world holding up China as this green leader is definitely a false narrative and propaganda. <laughs> and he also mentions, which I found to be an interesting situation that I knew, I guess, but I didn't really conceptualize and it's called the expanding bullseye effect. And so when you have the same growing area of a population and wealth, concluding in more expensive real estate and assets, the identical flood that maybe happened years prior will obviously cost more money because you have more housing and more assets and more expensive materialistic things within its range. So let's say you had a flood in Florida back in 1920, which was one of the worst floods, I will say, I don't know if it was in Florida, but it's in the book. And back in 1920, and the coastline of Florida was wiped out and it was a certain cost. If you had that exact same flood today, even though our adaptation as far as infrastructure has grown, it will cost more because you have more people, you have more houses, more cars, and more materialistic and assets within its range. So something to think about. And when they tend to say, oh, this storm was the most expensive storm in years. They failed to mention this. So they scare us rather than informing us. When, when you actually think about the situation, because that's why when I read it, I was like, duh, but I never really thought about it. Makes sense. So that's kind of why we get the climate change conversation so wrong, because it's not honest. So how do we measure the future of the climate change? He says the two key variables of how to measure destruction from climate change and then what we can do about it is through the GDP. So what is it going to cost us as far as our GDP levels? And he says carbon dioxide, if none of you guys knew, so carbon dioxide gas leads to global warming because it lets the sun's heat out, but it blocks some of the Earth's heat from escaping and therefore it warms up the planet. Each year emissions add to the total amount, although the world's or oceans and forests, and since we're getting a greener planet, they suck out equivalent to about half of the new emissions. So the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere keeps going up since 1750, but the total amount has increased only by 40%. And 
He goes on to continue of going over some of the GDP statistics. GDP, which is a basic level nations, you know, is the gross domestic product. So it is your economic, is how they, they value or calculate the economics in each country. So nations with higher, higher GDP per person is likely to have citizens who live longer because they have more access to healthcare, education, adaptation, innovation, medicine. We all know this, drinking water, food. A higher GDP per person correlates to a higher education rate, which lower child mortality rates because families can afford better healthcare. The poorest 2.8 billion people are forced to cook and heat with their houses by burning dirty fuels like wood, dunge, and cardboard. Breathing this, uh, this foul pollution is equivalent to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. And as I mentioned earlier, since 1990, the risk from indoor air pollution has dropped 58%, mostly because of the increase in GDP per person in the developing world. And as I was mentioning, as we now have like furnaces and cleaner ways to heat our homes and to cook, we have gas stoves or electric stoves. Therefore, we're not having to burn these, which I mean, wood actually is a renewable resource, but it, it gives out a lot of carbon dioxide and it's harmful to humans. And it also causes more deforestation. I, uh, interesting, I recently read a book from Yamni Park. She's a North Korean defector. And she speaks about, not really in the book, but in some of her interviews, that it's not as, the land of North Korea, at least where she was from, isn't as pretty as it could be because many of the trees have had to be cut down in order for them to heat and cook in their houses. So not always is the renewable way the most sufficient way, healthy way for both humans and the planet. So let's continue on to are these situations we're constantly hearing about extreme weather or extreme exaggeration. And before mentioning that, I do want to note that today it's 2021. We all have cell phones. We have computers. We have phone. We're constantly being notified of all the disasters around the world which obviously would make us think that more and more is happening, but we have to put into perspective that back in the day, we only had maybe one avenue, maybe the news as far as to get this information. Now everyone can record it. And so it seems more constant and it seems just like so much more bad news than was in the past. So we have to be cognizant of that, that we have tools that can share information much more rapidly and much more widely than than before so extreme weather or extreme exaggeration as a rule he will base his findings off the united nations climate scientists the inter intergovernmental panel on climate change or ipcc and i will note even though i'm not giving all the citations in here the book is cited he has obviously at the back of the book the notes so i am reading the information most of these statistics all the statistics that I'm reading are from the book. So you guys can check them if you want, but just saying. So a 2014 study shows a president or a persistent decline in global drought since 1982 and another from 2018. So it's actually a decline in drought. The numbers of consecutive dry days has declined for the last 90 years. So now let's continue into some of the extreme weather or weather conditions in general and kind of go over the statistics for them. Floods, heavy rainfall will increase areas to experience increased runoffs. So he is acknowledging that there will be more floods due to, 
increased rains. But the UN scientists emphasize trends in floods are strongly influenced by change in river management. Therefore, there are adaptation policies or um, innovations that we can do to help manage this. They say that it is far more important that we could look to reduce flooding than carbon cuts. And why, how we do that is revert in river management and reduce buildings in floodplains. So this is a big thing. When we see all these floods as same with fire, which I'll get to as well, and hurricanes, is that we're building in these dangerous zones that we know to be at high risk, but yet we continue building. And then when it does flood, it's like, oh my God, more people's houses have flooded yet they built in a flood risk zone. But they failed to mention that on the TV. And so he mentioned that instead of cutting carbon, because that's really not going to prevent more floods, we have to adapt and create our infrastructure to deal with this rain. And a breakdown example, and, and this is, this is uh, interest or inflation adjusted, rose from 3.5 billion in 1903 to 12.8 billion in 2018. The 2018, the annual cost of U.S. floods was 370% what it was in 1903. But the number of housing units in the U.S. has increased by much more. In 2017, there were 750% more housing units than in 1903. So flood, like the cost of floods increased 370%, but the housing increased 750%. Each house is much bigger. It's worth more and it's filled with a lot more stuff. Therefore, the cost of it being, you know, being um, devastated is going to be higher. And since 1970, the average house has increased by about a half and in size and nearly tripled in price. So obviously the price is going to be much larger when those houses are affected by these floods. Let's continue to fire. Over the past 150 years, our exposure to fire has dropped dramatically. The global burning has declined sharply since 1870. If you watch the news, especially when those fires were happening in Australia and California, you would never know that. You would never know that. Satellites showing a 25% reduction globally in burning areas just over the past 18 years. Primary, fa primary, primary factors in reduction in global burning in the past 110 years is by fire suppression and forest management, which was came to know or was brought to the attention when all those fires were happening in California, it actually happened to be that politicians were not doing the forest management by, you know, having controlled fires to burn a lot of the debris. They stopped doing that and they stopped, which ultimately resulted in fires expanding farther than they otherwise would have. Total global burning declined from 1.9 million square miles in the early part of the century to 1.4 square miles today. So that's actually a reduction of almost half or over half a million square miles. Overall, this has had the fact, effect of reducing the total annual burned area by one third. Homes, this is the same thing for floods that I just, met, uh, I just referenced. Homes located in high risk zones has increased drastically from half a million in 1940s to almost 7 million in 2010. So half a million to 7 million in less than a century Obviously, that is going to impact the amount of houses that are then, excuse me, that are then affected by fires. So his suggestion, Lombard's suggestion on how to avoid some of these things is one, 
governmental policies as far as where you can develop and where you can't, I tend to be more on the side of insurance, which he also mentions insurance agencies have to be stricter on where they allow to build. And honestly, humans have to be able to just take the responsibility upon themselves. If you're, if you're building in a high risk area, don't be surprised when your house catches on fire or floods. Let's continue on to hurricanes. UN climate scientists found no significant observed trends in global tropical cyclone frequency. They do find an increase in storms in the North Atlantic, but this is linked to air pollution, not so much climate change. But you can argue that air pollution is obviously in the guise of climate change. And like I said, I really care about having clean air, clean water, clean land on board. They specifically say that there is low confidence in attributing changes in hurricane activity to human influence. U.S. National Climate Change Assessment and NASA backed this finding. Coastal housing has increased, same with, so going back to warehouses are built in both flood areas, fire areas, and coastlines. Coastline housing has increased 16 times since 1900. Florida has increased 75 times. Man, do I wish I bought real estate in Florida a long time ago because the appreciation is through the roof. Anyways, I digress. When people get richer, hurricanes become less deadly. Why is that? Because we have better infrastructure. We have category five windows or now instead of shacks or more flimsy housing that you'll find in some island areas, we have cement buildings and like I said, very strong windows. And so these island these island nations and these communities are more heavily impacted and there's more devastation because they don't have the strong infrastructure. And how do we help them get that strong infrastructure? Economic prosperity. And my last point on hurricanes, the magazine Nature in one of their articles stated, hurricanes cost humanity about 0.04% of global GDP. By 2100, the damage will cost just 0.01 or 0.02 of GDP. And why is that? It's because our adaptation and innovation and stronger infrastructure to help defend us from these hurricanes. So now let's just touch on the deaths that are unfortunate, but happen due to climate catastrophes or climate in general. Deaths caused by climate related disasters have dropped precipitously over the last century. In 1920s, these disasters killed about half a million people. Today, these deaths have reduced to fewer than 20,000 people each year. Deaths have plummeted from climate by 96%. But now today, climate's gonna kill us all. Yet, the statistics show that climate is killing us less and less and less and less. Why aren't we told that? Because it doesn't scare you enough to get you to do what they want to do and to sign your name on the huge price tag of the Green New Deal, for example. So, extreme weather is causing less suffering in both deaths and term of shared GDP. But the media's narrative and politicians' narratives is that it's gonna kill us all, scaring not only people today, but our youth. <laughs> so let's continue. What is global warming costing us? We need to make sure that the cost isn't worse than the disease. That goes for anything, but it seems when it comes to climate change, no cost is too much because we're all gonna die from climate change. If I haven't said that enough throughout this video, I may say it again. <laughs> 
So Professor William Nordos of Yale University was the first and so far the only climate economic, econ economic economist climate economist to be awarded the Nobel Prize in economics in 2018. He wrote one of the first papers on the cost of, cli of the cost of climate change in 1991. The planet has experienced a bit less than two degrees Fahrenheit temperature increase since the Industrial Revolution. Cereal products, which are grains, more than uh, more than three times what it was in 1961, outpacing population. UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, predicts that by mid-century, climate change will reduce global crop outputs by just a fraction of 1% of today's outputs. By 2080, in worst case scenario, production of cereals will be 2.2% lower than it would be without climate change. Carbon dioxide, which is never mentioned either, Carbon dioxide is a fertilizer that boosts photosynthesis, which is why professional vegetation has actually gone up. And like I mentioned before, our planet's more green. So even though there are negative impacts of carbon dioxide, there are positive impacts of carbon dioxide too. So maybe just eliminating carbon dioxide and going carbon neutral isn't the answer. But AOC and Greta Thunberg and all these other people who can have a, a professional opinion or an opinion on climate change, which makes me think I can too, uh, will say that we just have to go carbon neutral. Yet, that won't solve the problem. And in some senses, carbon actually helps. Research shows that if we include the fact that carbon dioxide is fertilizer, the negative, the negative effects of higher temperatures are more than counteracted by fertilization. So, um, so carbon cuts today would really mean 12% lower crop yields, which means we'd have less food than if we didn't have this extra carbon admitted into the atmosphere. UN Climate Panel finds that even with a very large amount of heat, it will take a millennia or more to melt all of the Greenland's ice, because that was a big issue too. Greenland's going to melt, we're all going to drown. It's going to take, apparently, to the UN Climate Panel, more than a millennia for that to take place. Studies indicate that even in the absence of climate policy, 60 to 70% of Greenland's ice sheet would be around in a thousand years. So Armageddon, over-exaggerated. Think for yourself, make up your mind. The report that everyone uses to argue if we have a deadline of 2030, because you don't hear that, 12 years, that's all we got, 12 years, and now it would be apparently nine. 2030 to act to prevent climate change is the report. This report estimates that if we do nothing, the cost of global warming will reach 2.6% of global GDP by 2100. These studies almost always leave out adaptation, carbon dioxide as fertilizer, and the expanding bullseye effect that I mentioned earlier, that of course there's more damage because there's more stuff in the way. So Let's continue. How do we not fix climate change? And these are exactly, these are Lomberg's examples because obviously we have a big initiative on electric cars. And I'm not against electric cars. I love Elon Musk. I think he's brilliant. And I think he's, he's just a fascinating person. And it's, and it's pretty cool to live during the same time as him. And I hope he goes to Mars. That's pretty awesome. But this push for electric cars and all, which we're going to go over, which isn't just electric cars, is these governments giving picking winners and losers by amounting them to have ginormous amount of subsidies in order to push what the government finds to be what they want them to do. And he says electric cars, which are sold is zero emissions, but that's only true while driving them. 
many parts of the world, like many parts of the world, the electric cars are reliant on electricity that is largely produced from fossil fuels, as well as the development of the battery that go in electric cars is done by fossil fuels. So same thing when you get, you get these giant windmills and stuff, how do you think they're made? By factories with, operated by fossil fuels. And he goes on to mention that the subsidies spent on electric cars global, global, globally are about $10,000 per car. And who do you think's driving a Tesla? It ain't, it ain't your, your average middle median income person in America. It's the wealthy. They love the subsidies. It's always, it always tends to benefit the wealthy and the elites who always tend to be the ones promoting the policies. Hmm. Interesting. Anyways, let's continue. Planes, which also, there are at least 80% of people on the planet because, you know, they, they don't want you to fly. You can't fly in your commercial flight, but they can take private jets. They'll take private jets to their parties. They'll take private jets to climate, you know, climate events because they're important and it's for your safety. Okay. Planes, at least 80% of people on the planet have never taken a flight according to Boeing, which is quite incredible. I've flown many, many, many times in my life and it's what a privilege it is to live in the developed Western world. That's all I got to say. India, only 2% of the population has ever boarded an aircraft. An aircraft. That's crazy. Adaptation aircrafts, and they, and they go on to say, like, because adaptation and innovation is the solution to solve these problems. Adaptation in uh, regarding or pertaining to airplanes, aircrafts on average are 20% more fuel efficient than the model that it replaces. So as we progress, we actually make things more economically pleasant and viable to do less harm to the environment. So innovation, adaptation, and ca uh, capitalism is good. And like I said, the elites and the politicians that are telling you that you need to drastically change your life, less flights, less air conditioning, don't do the same. And they don't live out what they preach. Keep that in mind. Let's continue. He argues that the government should spend obviously a lot more subsidies. Instead of subsidizing wind and solar, they should use those funds to go towards education and to, because when people are more educated, then they have more develop and adaptation. And despite the major amount of subsidies, which is equivalent to 140, $140 billion each year subsidizing insufficient energy, which is solar and wind, this huge expenditure only provides us funds for energy that provides 1% of the global energy. So we give all this money to wind and solar, yet they only give us 1% of the energy. Sounds like the when you weigh the cost and benefits, we're paying a lot more for the small, if even notable benefit of that energy. Solar and wind, let's kind of get into solar and wind. Solar and wind power can't be turned on when it's need. It's when it's needed. It's not reliable. And we well, wind produces less than 7% of the US electricity, and this is from 2018. Solar, less than 2%. In total, renewable energy sources produce 17% of the US electricity, but most of this came from old renewables, majority of hydroelectricity. 
Solar and wind turbines together deliver 1.1% of the global energy. But according to AOC, you're going to use solar and wind forever for everything. We're going to, we are going to use them to run our manufacturing. China, on the other hand, is going to use more reliable energy like fossil fuels. And then we'll compare, we'll compare economies and who is the manufacturing empire in the world because it ain't the United States, but don't worry. It's fine because we're all going to die. Let's continue. EU renewable energy in the turn of the century has increased from 6 to 14%. And this is from 2018. Wind and solar, 2.7% of all energy. And biomass makes up more than 10%, which is wood. Much of the wood is imported from the United States. So the EU has about 10% of their, uh, their energy from biomass, which is wood. That is from the United States, which is shipped to them on ships from diesel. Weird. Weird how that works. And when you burn wood, it's actually even more carbon dioxide than coal. But it's renewable, and that's all I gotta tell you. Renewable, sustainable. And then us as consumers are like, oh, renewable, sustainable. They're not being honest with us. And I continue. About 20% of the EU's budget is spent on climate policies. That's crazy. Residential electricity costs are twice as what the U.S. is. Prices are expected to quadruple with additional climate policies. And in the EU, or I think it was in, yeah, in the EU, uh, the wealthy pay about 3% of their income on electricity and like utilities of that sort. The poor or the middle class pay about 10%. So the rich and the wealthy are always able to accept higher prices where it is much more of a burden on the middle and lower class. So now let's go over the topic of the Paris Climate Agreement because as we know, when Trump was president, he pulled out of it and Biden uh, now wants to get back into it. And some people cheer it on, some people don't. And honestly, we have no idea what it even is for the most part. I think anything that will cost us one to $2 trillion is too expensive, but there's many people who just like the word of Paris Climate Accord and they're gonna save the planet and they're willing to sign off on it. So let's go over some of the details since this will cost us a lot of money. So it, the Paris Climate Agreement incurs costs of some of one to two trillion dollars a year by 2030. Best case scenario, we will achieve just 1% of what the politicians have promised because politicians aren't always honest with us. And so it'll, it'll achieve about 1% of what politicians have promised, keeping the temperatures to rise 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit at a huge cost of $1 to $2 trillion per year. And that's probably a conservative estimate because as we know, when governments try and do something, it usually takes longer, it's more expensive, and it doesn't even really get done. And what will this ultimately do? It'll obviously, will have more subsidies for solar and wind, which often benefits the rich. And as I said, it's not even reliable energy and it doesn't even sufficiently supply energy to most of the world. Emissions of carbon dioxide are largely a byproduct of productivity, heating, cooling, food, transport, hospital care, etc. So countries promising to reduce their emissions are effectively promising to make all these things more expensive. And it will have 
more burden on the poor than it will the elites, which will ultimately affect everyone when you have slow economic growth, but mostly the middle class of the poor and these developing nations. Their agreement could cost the world one to two trillion dollars annually, like I said, by 2030, and we won't be able to tell the difference in temperatures even in a hundred years. Maybe it's costing us too much for the benefit that it's giving us. The most expensive pact, it is the most expensive pact in history at two trillion. It is at par with the entire expenditure on the world's military each year. In the U.S., we are going, um, if we were to go carbon neutral by 2050, that would imply a cost of at least five trillion in today's money every single year. That is higher than the entire current federal spending of 4.5 trillion dollars. So we, if we were to go carbon neutral by 2050, it'll cost more than we're spending our federal budget. And mind you, we are trillions of dollars in debt. Where is this money coming from? It doesn't even make logical sense. But if we only just thought about it, but you know how they sell us? Because you're gonna die. And they, your fear, 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 fear. Because it sells and it makes you do things you otherwise wouldn't do and honestly, None of us really know anything. Even the people touting these policies don't know anything about the situation. So, but experts say, trust the experts. Don't think for yourself. Don't be skeptical because experts said so. So overall, there has never been an official statement on the cost of the Paris Agreement. And we can see why, even though the agreement will do almost nothing for the climate, it promises it will reduce temperatures of a rise of the end of the century by 0 0.05 degrees Fahrenheit. So now with all that information on some context on the policies as well as the truth behind what is going on with the climate, how does climate change hurt the poor? Which I briefly touched on, but let's go in more detail. Obviously, poor developing nations need more education, they need more health, they need technology. And in order to do so, they need the energy to facilitate these things, which reliable energy done by fossil fuels, just like the developed nations today have used. And it is wrong for us to tell them that they can't develop their nations while we already developed ours using reliable energy like fossil fuels. When people in rich countries talk about the problem in the developing world, we typically talk about it when catastrophe strikes. And why do we do that? Because then they can say, look, look, look over there, climate change. While if we were to, like we do in our country, boost up infrastructure and adaptation, their catastrophes wouldn't be so dramatic. They say, I go on to continue, uh, areas hit by hurricanes would be better off if they were to be less poor instead of carding, cutting carbon. Like we, like we said, better infrastructure rather than these coastal island areas that are living in relative to American standards shacks and they get hit very hard when hurricanes come through. Putting climate policies over growth policies doesn't just do nothing. It actually is very detrimental to poor and developing nations. And in my opinion, it's inhumane and anti-human. So we are going to sacrifice their other humans' lifespan expectancy, their life in general, day-to-day, -day, and their infrastructure so we feel better about taking care of the planet. It's in it, it, it's immoral. It's it's not right. 
And I want to continue by saying when, when climate policies lead to higher electricity prices, as we kind of mentioned before, this harms the poor more than the rich. When elites have no problem taking on another tax or higher prices because a smaller percent of their income is paid for these higher energy bills, where more percent of the income of middle class and lower class are, are paid to energy bills. So when they go up, that is more money out of their pocket and it, they, they are more aware of it and it's, they're more burdened by it. And higher energy prices will literally kill people, as um, Lomberg said. In 2019, a study shows that fracking, which no more fracking appeared to AOC and Biden, even though Biden said he wasn't going to end fracking, but now, you know, now that he's elected, politicians never lie, but now he's going to end fracking. In 2019, studies shows that fracking delivered dramatically lower energy costs in America, which drove down the price of, of heating homes. Cold homes are one of the leading causes of death in the winter. This study estimated that the lower energy prices saved about 11,000 Americans from dying in the winter each year. There has always been and there always will be natural disasters. And that's one thing we have, we have to like put into consideration. There will all, we, we cannot create this utopia economically or environmentally that some people try and sell you. It is not true. Utopia is heaven. So if you want utopia, be a good person, find your relationship with God and go to heaven. But we are not going to have utopia here on earth. And we need to be cognizant and acknowledge that in order to make responsible decisions on how to move forward with any policy that is or any problem that is facing human humans today is that utopia is impossible. But how can we innovate and adapt and develop and, re and use research to develop to make life better? Better, not perfect. But even though we can't make the world perfect, we can obviously make it better. And we have done for many, many, many years and we will continue to do so. Some more good news. Growth between now and 2050 will drastically reduce the amount of people starving from 800 million today to 200 million by 2050. So I wanna continue on what Lomberg's ideas are on how to fix climate change. Obviously, innovation and adaptation, which would be my my way of thinking that through. I believe in the individual. I believe in human ingenuity. And I believe in in innovation, that technology as it grows and people care. I mean, they're like, they do research. There's actual, there's Elon Musk who's trying to do things. He cares about the problem. He's trying to make life better here on Earth and potentially in Mars. There's another person that I follow, the Ocean Cleanup, and they are uh, they created these incredible machines that are in rivers and they stop the, because a lot of, uh, majority of the pollution in the ocean come from a minute amount of rivers throughout the world, many located in Asia. So they have these machines that are located in these rivers to, um, to accumulate the pollution and the, you know, the amount of plastic or whatever it may be in the ocean or in the river before going into the ocean. And their goal, I believe by 2050, I'm not quite sure the date, is they want to, maybe it's a little bit sooner, maybe it's like 2000, I don't know. They want to reduce, there is, I don't know if you guys have known this, there is a island of trash in the Pacific Ocean the size of Texas. And their goal is to make that reduced by half, I think by 2030 actually. But they have these incredible machines that are doing that and they're using this trash and then they're gonna try and develop products from that. You can look up, look up companies like this, people actually who care about the environment tend to just go and take care of it themselves and to put their money where their mouth is, not just the taxpayer money where their idealistic views tend to lead them. Um, Lombard 
also touches on that he believes in a global tax that would be the same throughout everyone that would reduce or hinder the amount of carbon that is initiated so it's like a carbon tax if you if you put forth a certain amount of carbon into the atmosphere you have to pay a tax on that i as a more conservative libertarian minded person am not in favor of taxes so i disagree but maybe some of you will agree so he, he has a section on that um as i said adaptation when it comes to sea level rising coastal coastal defense and better infrastructure when it comes to flooding i mean there's literally nations like holland and he compares in the book holland and bangladesh who live under the sea level and holland tends to have less catastrophe when it comes to flooding and water because of their prosperity and they're able to have stronger dikes and infrastructure when you compare that to bangladesh they tend to have more catastrophe or, or damage done by these disasters because of they don't have the same prosperity or capabilities that holland have so what we really need to do is to make these to make economies everywhere in societies everywhere more prosperous where they can have stronger they can have stronger defense climate defense through infrastructure adaptation and innovation we need these people who are in hotter temperatures to have air conditioning because when it's really hot outside we are lucky and privileged enough to be able to go inside and turn our air conditioning on same thing when it's cold because more people die from cold than they do hot so he actually makes the argument that the temperature getting a little bit warmer will actually be less deadly than if it were to get colder but thankfully we have situations where we can go inside and we can heat our homes and for us in the western developed world we don't have to use coal or we don't have to use wood we have furnaces electric gas things of that nature fossil fuels hmm. and a good point of this, which I thought was an interesting point, I don't even know if you guys know this, is it's, we don't need the government to always tell us to innovate and to do better. Because back in the, between the 1700s and the 1800s, we, one of the, the fifth largest industry in the world was whale oil, because that, they would use the oil from the whales, so they would slaughter whales to light in, in the candles. Through innovation, not because the government told them to stop killing whales, but they found, you know, through innovation in creating electricity that there's more sufficient, cost-effective, and less damaging ways to get electricity. So humans will take the approach that is more cost-effective and humane, given the ability to do so. And then he goes on to uh, mention that there are ways to store energy, and it's something that we should put money for for research and development, um, and 90%, 96% of the energy today that is stored is by a technology of water storage. So when they pump the water up and then they bring it down when they need it and it's a way, you know, he, he does a little bit more technical terms, but that's how they store energy. And so when it's used, they're able to access that energy at any time. He also says investment in nuclear energy, which no one, you know, the many people in the that push for the green new deal they say they want carbon cuts they want to help the environment and more make more clean energy yet they're against nuclear or is it that they're trying to cut carbon and they're trying to better the environment or is it that it's just they want to implement their policies more money more control and ever expanding government i don't know something to think about but nuclear energy is one of, has one of the lowest death risks of any energy it is very safe and it doesn't emit any carbon dioxide. It is expensive to develop their plants, but you know, that may be something that the cost is worth the benefit because it's 
energy that could be stored. It's easier, it's safer, it doesn't emit carbon, and it's dependable. Another one is, which he mentions, just putting more forth research and development. He's not saying to go on it today, but it is something that we should be cognizant of and something that we should continue to research and develop. And it's called Geoengineering Backup Plan. And this is about more sophisticated ways to alter the climate. I don't know how I feel about it, but I'm not against scientists looking into it. And one of them is stratospheric aerosol injection, marine cloud brightening. And I'll let you read the book to have a more insightful view on what it does. But it seems that activists are more concerned with just reducing fossil fuels than they are in reducing the rise in temperatures because otherwise they would want more access and development and research into nuclear or these geoengineering scientific ways. <laughs> so in my conclusion, I just want to say that experts and politicians, like I mentioned at the beginning of my episode and I'm going to mention again today, are never held accountable for being wrong. They don't want us to be skeptical. They just say experts say, and you are to believe. They don't want you to double think. As I mentioned, a lot of the information that they give to us is to scare us and it's not even accurate, honest information. It's constant state of fear because they know when, when, when people are fearful, we look to the government to save us. And the government will take advantage of those, those human emotions and manipulate them and enforce them for what they want and their desired end. And I am very skeptical of people who push fear in order to obtain more power to themselves. And like any, in my opinion, any fair-minded individual, you should always be skeptical of the government. If history has taught us anything, it's that the government is the biggest threat to civilization. It always has been and it always will be. And while I was researching this book and researching, some things came up of an anti-human movement. And the more I research about climate, because it's something I, I'm greatly, I am concerned about, while always being concerned, also being concerned about the, about human life. I think we should have clean water. I think we should have clean air. I think we should have clean oceans. And I think we should take care of our animals and we should take care of each other. But I came across a, a Stanford ecologist, which he mentions in False Alarm, in a book called The Population Bomb. Because you'll, you'll hear many people today in the environment, or that are part of the environment movement, that we should have less children, and that we should control the population because we're having too many people. One, who is the government or anyone to tell you if you should ha have children or not? And what do you do? What do politicians and people of power do to control the population? And so is it carbon dioxide that they're trying to eliminate? Or is it you, the carbon being, that they're trying to eliminate? Now, I think there's many people who are in support of the green, the green movement who care about the environment. But I also think there's a lot of powerful people in that movement who care about control and power. And they care about population control. And this book, which I, I recommend you guys all read, it's about, you can get it on PDF online, The Population Control. Mind you, he was drastically wrong, but never held accountable. It was published in 1971, and he said that the world was, in, by the 1980, the life expectancy of the American would be 42 years old. Wrong. He also said that 
that we would run out of food wrong. And based off him and other researchers that say that the popul growing population is bad, has resulted into some researchers considering adding chemicals to water supplies or staple foods to make the world's poor temporarily sterile. And we've seen governments make people sterile or have a have a population policy as like China, a one child policy. And who is it for experts to tell anyone but developing more vulnerable populations that they can't have children and to think about or even implement sterilization of these people? Who do these people think that they can play God? While there is absolutely no st statistical data, data saying that more people on this earth have led to worse life on this earth as far as less food because the more people have actually resulted into more food as well as just life being more easily and convenient because the world's population has grown since then and the convenience of life has drastically improved. So it makes you think, are these people pro-environment or are they anti-human? And the more research I do, I tend to think there's a lot of people in this movement that are anti-human. These are the same people that are pro-abortion. They think you shouldn't have children as if children and having children will destroy the earth and that your joy of having a family is not does not outweigh the cost that they say of the planet. So is it pro-planet or anti-human? And I will have a follow-up video on the anti-human agenda that I've noticed, and I will go more in depth on some of the experts that have implemented this or facilitated this ideology and have pushed it for many, 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 many years. And to wrap up, I just want to say that, in my opinion, answering the problems of climate and many other things are through human ingenuity. It is through innovation. As we know, governments suck at everything. The few amount of people in government tend to make problems worse. I believe that the vast amount of people in the population, given the freedom, will ultimately solve the problems through innovation and development. And not only will they solve the problems, they will grow our economy, making life better for you and I and everyone else, making it more convenient, making it more prosperous and allowing us to do more things. Because when you live in a more privileged society, then you get to think about art and music and things, hobbies. When you're living in a developing nation where you don't even know where your next meal is, you don't have the luxury of being able to have hobbies. And so I truly believe that the answer is through innovation. Now, of course, I find there to be minor, but some regulation that is important. And I would say, I don't know where I fall on that because I tend to not really be in favor of regulation because I think the government always goes too far. And I genuinely do think for the most part, people want a clean environment and they want to they, when given the opportunity, they will make the right decision to create things while having the less, as little amount of damage to the environment as possible. For instance, in the future, 
in the near future. I am in the process of working on a clothing company. I don't know if many of you know. Next to the oil industry, clothing is one of the leading polluters in Earth or on on our Earth. Um, the leading polluting the leading polluting industries on Earth. And majority of it is done in China. So I would like to take the initiative for one, I love fashion, but to create a company that is conscious of not only where things are being sourced, but how they're being sourced and how they're being made. And I think it is up to us as the individual, even though he will argue that it's not technically individuals that will solve the problem. But if we are more conscious consumers and we demand that industries and companies really do business according to our values, I think we will make an impact. And I truly believe that innovation and human ingenuity is the answer and little government is the way. I don't believe in an ever expanding government that controls every aspect of our life. I think the Green New Deal and these tremendously expensive policies with little benefit are not a way to solve the problem of the environment, but rather a way to control you, control your means of production, your money, and to give the people in government our better, our, our better halves all the power. So like I said, this wasn't something to make you think a certain way, but I hope it gave you some information to just give you something to think about and do some research on your own. Of course, always do research on topics before agreeing to policies that could ultimately cost you a lot of money and even cost you your freedom. So I hope you found this episode. I hope you found this episode somewhat educational, if not entertaining. So I hope to see you again soon. If you did, let me know what you think. Share with your family and friends. Again, I appreciate you for watching. Always take care of yourself, educate yourself, rely on yourself to educate yourself. Do not rely on the government or anyone else. It is up to you. Be a responsible, cognizant, conscious being. And if we want change in the world, we have to be the change that we want to see in the world. So again, thank you for watching. Love y'all and God bless. See you soon.